Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive, and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Before we get started in this one today, we did want to put a quick trigger warning. Uh, we are going to be discussing topics of sexualization, especially of young girls and potentially molestation um, and abuse like that. Uh, it's always interesting when you put these trigger warnings at the top before you've recorded it. Uh, <laughs> not really sure how far this is going to go into that. I don't think we're going to get too in depth, but if that's something you're worried about, want to put that out there. And we also want to welcome a guest Woo-hoo. because today... We are once again joined by Jamie Loftus of the Bechdel cast and the new podcast called the Lolita podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, you last time you were here, I totally had to look it up because it feels like literally 10 million years ago. How long <laughs> was I was wondering that. I was like how that I have lost all concept of time. When was right? it? I think it was two and a half years ago. It was oh, only for okay. me. So that I know that. Right. right. I was like, we just met. So this is <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I'm trying um, to remember how long I've been with the podcast. So I was like, uh, it was before then. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I believe it was two and a half years ago and we were discussing um basically mothers in movies and like evil stepmothers and evil yes. queens and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, which was which was fun. Um so we're so glad to have you back. And today we wanted to talk about your new podcast, the Lolita Podcast, and mm-hmm. um issues that you delve into in that show. But I guess first, for people who also have a weird concept of time, um, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, So I'm a comedian uh, by trade, which sounds weird matched up with this podcast, but it's true. (laughs) Uh, So I'm a comedian and and podcaster and TV writer. Uh, I host the Bechdel cast, which is a feminist movie podcast that's been on iHeartRadio for Four years today. Yay! Wow, uh, congrats. <laughs> Four more years. Uh, but but and yeah, I, I've also hosted um, investigative shows. I did a show called My Year in Mensa earlier where I spent a year uh, in Mensa and kind of getting to the bottom of um, a, you know, low-level supremacy group, basically. And uh, then for the past six months, I've been working on Lolita podcast. So it's been, it's been more of a depressing year for, <laughs> for work, but, but I'm happy to be doing it. So you're just doing the 2020 thing and making it all like doom and gloom a little bit? Go in. Just go doubling in. and tripling down, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that fits in with this show. Yeah. Uh, we cover a lot of fun topics, but many of them always have like this tinge of, but also patriarchy. <laughs> Here's right. the sad part. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. We've been doing that on the uh, on the Bechtel cast too. We're like, we'll do three depressing movies, and then we're like, okay, we're gonna do Flubber today because <laughs> yes. otherwise uh, we're gonna start to lose the thread. So right. yeah, right, <laughs> yes. Us too. 
Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the Lolita podcast? Uh, yeah, this is a project that has been kind of in the back of my mind for several years now because um, gr- growing up, I definitely read Lolita far too young and it really affected. I read it when I was 12, I think maybe even 11, and it really affected me in a way that was not helpful. And for years, I found myself saying like, oh, it's my favorite book. But I, it it was because it had been recommended to me by my favorite children's author. And I had no context. I had no, like, it, it had just been presented to me the entirely wrong way. I was too young to be reading it. And, you know, all of the cultural aesthetics surrounding it don't help you with the context at all. And it, it makes it worse. Um and so for years, I went back and reread it a couple of years ago and was kind of, and had a very different read um, of the book. And and so I've been just spending uh, the past six months going into, well, why is this book remembered the way it is? A lot of it has to do, I think, with the way that it's been adapted and just, and the way that it's been talked about over the years. So that's what... I'm doing this uh, 10-hour podcast about <laughs> is is kind of getting to the bottom of tracing that legacy because I do think it's an important example of um, how we treat uh, victims of abuse, particularly children, and and um, how you know a bad adaptation and you know the the wrong kind of cultural discussion essentially can you know, take a valuable story and and turn it into something that's the exact opposite. And so, yeah. Yeah, and I think um, a couple of disclaimers here, I suppose. One, you don't have to have read the book to listen to this podcast. Yes. Um, Two, I haven't read the book, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited about this because three, Samantha has some really strong (laughs) opinions about this book. Yeah, I'm excited to hear. Right. I know um, it's so funny when we were approached to having this as a topic, I was like, oh my God. And I think Ian had already talked about it even before this came up. I don't even know why it Mm -hmm. did. But I I did have a question. What made you think this is something that you wanted to talk about. Like, what even brought it to the forefront? To I need to reread this book. I need to, you know, and then having that breakdown of like, oh my God, this is not what I expected or what I remembered from it. Uh, well, I guess what made me reread it a couple of years ago was that I was just kind of, I was talking to some friends from home and like a friend of mine remembered how I had had my copy of Lolita like taken by my gym teacher when I was in middle school and they were kind of like teasing me about it. And I was just, I don't know. Yeah, I was just like, wow. I Like, it just hadn't struck me how, like, off it was that I had been so determined to read it so young. And so that was, I just wanted to revisit it, basically, because especially, like, doing a show like The Bechtel Cast, I'm constantly in the mode of, like, oh, that media I consumed as a child, you know, most likely f***ed me up in some way, but I don't even know how, you right. know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Yeah, so that was kind of why I jumped back into it originally. And then um, there's been just so much continued discussion about it over the years, but never in a really extended, concise way. And so I I was kind of at the mind of the discussion uh, around this book has been so consistent, it's clearly not going to go away. So someone should do the full, you know, do the full analysis and, and, you know, go into the trillion terrible adaptations of this project and kind of figure out why it has had such a negative cultural net effect. Yeah. um, And before we get into that effect and also, Samantha, your why it impacted you (laughs) so much, um, I guess for someone like me who I have a very vague idea what this is about, could you give Mm -hmm. a synopsis of Lolita? Uh, yeah, so uh, Lolita is a book by Vladimir Nabokov um, that is told from the perspective of a child sex abuser named Humbert Humbert. Um, he is narrating the entire book. The book is framed uh, with a foreword from a psychologist who tells you that this is a book being told 
by a child sex abuser who's trying to basically win your favor as a reader. And so the and and so Humbert Humbert um, is basically detailing uh, this five year period in which he's you know molesting a young girl named Dolores. Uh, he marries her mother in order to get closer to her. Her mother dies. It's probably he did it. Uh, you know that's a hot take, but it probably he did. Um, and then he abducts her and. Um, you know, ha- has her kind of under his caretaking as he's abusing her for several years. Uh, she gets away when she's 14. And uh, then at the end, uh, she's 17 and pregnant and married. And they uh, see each other one last time. And then uh, they both die. And that's the book. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> They don't die. They die separately. He dies in prison, uh, but not because he was arrested for being a a child sex abuser. He gets arrested because he murdered someone else. Wow. So it's heavy. It's very heavy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was darker than I thought it would be. And I was prepared for pretty dark. It's extremely dark. Yeah. I definitely gave her that warning. I was like, you don't need to read the book. As in fact, don't read the book. (laughs) Because she's infamous for researching in depth and cannot just do a little bit. She must read all of it. I'm like, no, no, no. Seriously, don't read this book. (laughs) It's, yeah. And there's a, there's like a pretty detailed, synopsis in the first episode of the podcast mm-hmm. for people, you know, for that exact reason, for people right. who don't want to read the book, because it's totally understandable. Right. And I think you did a great job. I listened to that episode. And uh, you also had people call in, you have people calling in, giving their opinions. And it was mm-hmm. really interesting to hear the back and forth. And even like as, because uh, I, of course, I follow you on Twitter because you're amazing and hilarious and everything is very important. Um <laughs> But like people's response to your talking about this book or talking about the fact that you did a podcast, not even talking about what you're going to talk about, people's reaction is very uh, heated, it, mm-hmm. as mine was as well. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Obviously. What are some of the commonalities that you've gotten in this reactions from people? Um, it's been kind of an interesting mix, but it falls into a few kind of common categories. Um, there are uh, there there were especially when I had just announced a podcast and not released anything. There were a bunch of listeners that are like, "I don't like this book. I don't like its legacy. I don't like the fact that it exists." Um, and you know, I think kind of like you know, just had a very strong negative reaction to it. Sometimes that's because of their own personal histories as well. Um, So that's certainly one common reaction. There's other people who were uh, like, I did get a lot out of this book, Um, sometimes based with on, you know, similar histories of, of abuse and, you know, having... I don't know. There's so many ways to approach it where some people enjoyed the book, but they felt guilty for enjoying the book and they wanted to unpack like what that was. There are other people who absolutely despise the book. Uh, there were a lot of people who hadn't read the book, but were only familiar with the aesthetics and the cultural legacy of it. And then there were um, a, lot, a lot of callers who... Um, are into uh, Lolita fashion, which has nothing to do with the book. And they were like, please leave us out of this narrative. Right. Um, <laughs> so those were the common, those are the common reactions. Which I want to come back to because I was like, what? What? Yeah. Okay, yeah. What? I, I've never heard of this. <laughs> right. I mentioned it to Annie because uh, like I said, as I was reading this, I was like, what is, th-? okay, we'll, we'll come back. <laughs> but I, we do want to come back to Ed. Um, sure. But as we were talking about uh, what's happening uh, with, the cultural perspective of Lolita and why it has grown into such way. I, I, I am one of those that got caught up because I did, uh, like you mentioned in your episode, forget the prologue. I absolutely mm-hmm. forgot because it's been 15 years since I've read it. Sure. Look, I can't remember time. Oh, over <laughs> like over 15 years, probably like 20 years actually since I've read mm-hmm. it. Uh, but it's definitely impacted me, but everything else I remembered. And so the way mm-hmm. you framed it, I was like, oh, you're right, it is this way. But can you talk about what this book has done in that perspective of how we see, uh, especially because the term Lolita has its own meaning. It is a whole other urban dictionary level of meaning, as well as the origins of the word nymphette, which I will never forget reading that. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's so many like very, very dark parts of this book that I just, I remember reading as a kid and just being like, God, Jesus Christ. You know, it, <laughs> it is, I, I, I genuinely, like, I don't think it, and it's, it's unrealistic to think that, you know, kids will not get their hands on books if they truly want to. But I, I really hope they don't on this one. It's like extremely, extremely um, heavy, but the sorry, wait. What was the question? I just got. <laughs> I, I have a habit of double questioning. Oh <laughs> no, like no, it was two or three questions. So yes, uh, the question was specifically about you know the the cultural uh, connotations yes. behind it with like the word Lolita and Nymphet, and which is this is the beginning of where we see it created. Yeah. Uh, so I I think that that happens almost instantaneously uh, when the book is released. Um, the way that it's received and the culture it's kind of received into kind of immediately misses the point. Um, and that's something that I, I've gotten in, into where there, there's, you know, people feel whichever way they feel about the book. Um, it does seem that Nabokov's intent was to tell a cautionary tale that clearly condemns the protagonist. But that immediately you see in the reviews of the book that a lot of like cis white male reviewers of this book do not understand that at all. And they immediately start branding it like a love story mm-hmm. and like you've got to hand it to Humbert Humbert. And, you know, just immediately missing the fact that the you know just ignoring the fact that you're told that this is a you know serial abuser on the first page and buying into the protagonist who is lying to you to try to you know save save himself from having to spend life in prison and and so um it, that happens the second the book is released and um, continues to happen in all the adaptations. There's really no adaptation that exists that isn't just missing the point. It's also, for there's just this, this trend of, of picking creators to adapt this story that like are uniquely qualified to miss the point. It's right. just like, it's just above and beyond. So it happens pretty much right away and uh, never really has course corrected up until, you know, recently there's been more of an interest in viewing the text from a survivor's perspective and um, from a female perspective. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting trans perspectives on this book, uh, but it's just the, these perspectives are just sort of starting to come to the front now. It's for so long just been adapted by white guys who seem to really have a lot of contempt uh, for the protagonist. And so that kind of carries through. But there has been over the years, you know, it's it, the internet communities that have formed around it are, there's myriad, there's so many, uh, and and they all sort of have their perspective on on the text. So it's weird. There's kind of like an underground reclamation effort but you know all the all the large adaptations have been done by um people who i I think just completely miss the point, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's kind of uh you know we were talking about my heavy reaction as a social worker who yeah. who worked sure. uh, with children I specifically worked with abused children um with the child and family children's services that when I read this, it wasn't because I knew anything about it. I actually knew hardly anything. I knew the term Lolita at this point, but I didn't quite understand the point of this book. And then mm-hmm. I went into college where, of course, I did my English courses and my you know literary people who loved books said this was their favorite book. And I had like four different people tell me this um, within yeah. back to back to back. So I was like, okay, I need, to, I need to read this. I need to figure out what this is. And I read it and I was so angry. I was so angry coming from... Uh, a person as a survivor, as well mm-hmm. as a person who is an advocate and has worked with children for a while now, seeing this and having this moment of like, this is what pedophiles would use as an excuse, the language that's used within this. And of course, realizing, you know, the perspective is from a pedophile, from the actual uh, molester, is mm-hmm. saying this is love. And just like how you're saying, like people call this a love story, which was told to me, was told that like I mm-hmm. was explained as that from someone who I saw as, I think they were a TA in my English class who told me this. Oh my God. And I was pissed. I was beyond pissed. And ever since then, I'm like, this is absurd. And yes, the book is 
written well. Like, there's no denying that. He is an amazing writer. And I went so far as to disprove about this book that I went and got Pellfire and immediately read it. I was like, why can't you say this is your favorite book? (laughs) (laughs) There are, I always, I'm like, there are like so many Nabokov books that are not about the most horrifying crime a person commit like that I mean, are very still sad good. it is still, it's still really sad upsetting but it's not oh, it's this level where the excuses right. well it seems like they're excusing their behaviors against a child but i was like what the hell <laughs> but that's like that's how far i went not even having anything to do with this as my schoolwork i was like uh-uh I'm, I'm not allowing this to stand. Like, even to yeah. this day, I'm like, this is not the best. Y'all just shut up. But it kind of does bring that whole conversation of uh, people individually interpreting. And as you said, for the longest time, it was a cis hetero male who was like, yeah, this is just fine. This is perfect. And and you even gave examples of uh, past literary workers and today mm-hmm. who kind of says the same thing about, and we see that pattern of these older men grooming young women and saying it's love. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little more about like why you see that? Uh, why, I don't know if you know the answers, but like how it latches on to that kind of perspective. So I guess one thing that I look, cause what was really kind of like gnawing at me when I started and like a huge question I had was like, why did Nabokov write this? Like, why? Mm-hmm. What? Like, you have to have, there has to be a reason. Um, and so I went back and I like spoke to his biographers and I, I went kind of deep into his life to see like he was not an abuser. There, There's no behavioral patterns like that. But I did find that he had been a uh, survivor of child sexual abuse himself um, and which kind of put it into perspective for me a little more. It was never something he talked about publicly, but his biographer was like, well, this was like a common theme in his early life. And so there is this through line in Nabokov's work where children are abused and ignored and disbelieved. And so it was, um, that was just a kind of an an interesting um, thought to connect because I could never really track, you know, why, what is his fixation on this theme? And it seems like, I can't ask him, but it seems like it could have conceivably been something personal. Um, as to how uh, how p- people have consistently taken it uh, out of context, I mean, there's there's a million examples of it. The earliest adaptation is the Stanley Kubrick movie from 1962. And that one is, I mean... They're all bad. This one is particularly so because it just sets up a lot of the common adaptation changes that, you know, kind of manipulate the general public into thinking that this is acceptable and that Lolita or Dolores, depending on how you refer to her, but uh, that she could possibly be a consenting party, which she can't. Uh, But... The 1960s doesn't view it that way. Stanley Kubrick, who has a god-awful track record in terms of female characters working with women, you know, at all, he's just not the person to be doing it. And then um, on top of that, there there was a story that uh, broke just less than two months ago that uh, detailed that the producer of the movie had uh, allegedly sexually abused the star, the actress who was playing Lolita. So mm-hmm. it's there is this just through line of it couldn't be more clear that the people put in charge of um, telling this story uh, have no interest in actually telling it. They're more interested in empowering the abuser, and it just basically demonstrates that they have fallen. Uh, fallen for it. They've fallen for the the lies that this protagonist is telling and they're taking his worldview at face value, which is mm-hmm. an extremely dangerous road to go down. And then the other thing about, about the first adaptation is like, I, I feel like the most potent cultural image of Lolita is the, you know, girl gazing over the glasses, mm-hmm. which is not something that even appears in the movie. It's not something that appears in any adaptation. It was just strictly marketing of like male gaze driven marketing and so that to me is like one of the most concise examples that and the way that the covers of the book are designed that it's just like well it's it's not just an issue with this book in particular it's it's 
an issue with how we characterize these stories at all. That right. the fact that all the, you know, marketing images are blaming the victims of abuse just before you even open the book, mm-hmm. um, that like says something about the culture it's being released into and what they think is going to to be marketable to people. We have some more for you listeners, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer... Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. True love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another and every time after that. It's taking long walks together in the summer, gazing longingly into each other's eyes and, well, watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. The Pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. And I know you listeners know my love Peaches Gertrude McFuzzin, whom I've talked about so much, and she really was love at first sight. But I will tell you that it took a long time for me to find her. I actually was looking for a good two years before I stumbled upon her picture from my local shelter and knew the moment I saw her that she was the one. And the minute I tell you when I saw that picture and I went to meet her out the shelter and I sat with her for a good 20 minutes, y'all, I couldn't leave her. I knew she had to be mine. I knew we belonged together. Peaches and I are friends as well. We are, we have a good relationship together. So, you can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive June 7th to 9th, and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Visit pedigree.com adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Again, from my, my perspective of never, I... Never read it. I've never seen an adaption. And Samantha was kind of my like entryway mm-hmm. into Lolita. And uh, we were talking about it in terms of that whole blaming the victim thing of, of it being framed as this love story. And how, how common we do see that and not just Lolita. Like that is... Mm-hmm everywhere in our in our entertainment and our culture. And so I guess I'm kind of curious. I guess I'll, I'm going to double question too. Um, <laughs> one, like when people say it's their favorite book or when, you know, Stanley Kubrick makes this adaption and it's clearly missing the point, mm-hmm. why do you think that is? And then just on a larger scale, this sexualization of young girls um why i guess i kind of know the answer but i'd like to talk about it why is it so prevalent like why do we see that all over in terms of i mean i honestly have never found an argument for someone saying that one of the movie adaptations being one of their favorite movies to be 
convincing, compelling, or like grounded in reality. Uh, I think it's like a severe red flag if someone's like Stanley Kubrick's Lolita to me is great film. Like it's, it's just not, and it, there's, I, I feel like there's just nothing really to be taken from the movie adaptations other than very, you know, it, they, they're very revealing about the views of the time they were released into. But if you don't want to know what, in which ways the grand American culture was like willing to accept victim blaming in either 1962 or 1997, there's nothing for you there. And I mean, yeah, I, I really, really dislike the movie adaptations and some of the stage adaptations as well. They're just, it's just bad, 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 bad. Uh, in terms of the book, there, there is, I mean, it's just what, what I've found is it's a very personal reaction that everyone has with this book. I mean, there's, and what I'm more interested in is how survivors of abuse feel about it, how, um, you know, professionals in the psychology field feel about it, and just kind of getting to the bottom of like, this book definitely really affected me enough that I'm making a podcast about it 15 years later. Yeah. Um, and is it a worthwhile text to even still kind of be out there and, and reckoning with with that? And I've gotten, I mean, it, there's a lot of different answers and a lot of a lot of perspectives I honestly wasn't even aware of existing. But there are, there was an amazing piece in uh, Modern Love column a couple of years ago that details the experience of a survivor of child sexual abuse who used the book, you know, used the character of Dolores Hayes to kind of empower herself to report her abuser to uh, the authorities and to the police. And there's, there's been, it's, it, it gets so mired because this book has been used so irresponsibly to empower the villain, but there are also reads of it that, you know, victims of abuse have reclaimed it and really searched for the abused child that is in the book's pages and pull from that as kind of an argument that it that it is still a very relevant text. And so that's something that has been a whole journey for me as well. And, and I've spoken with, it's also kind of a, a split view in the psychology field of like, you know, whether we like it or not, this is still a very, you know, potent text that is very present. And it's like figuring out it's there. So how are we going to deal with it? What are we going to do with it? And how can we kind of stop the the messaging that exists around it and at least, you know, turn the discussion to something productive that doesn't serve to further harm people? And talking with child psychologists has has been interesting in that regard too because there's you know the reads where it's empowering the villain and it's empowering abusers of the highest degree and then there's also the read that I've spoken to several psychologists about saying that they teach it to their psychology students in terms of like this is how an abuser could think and keeping in mind with students like the fact that I don't know. I feel like it's almost a, a different common cultural trope that abusers are like a very particular way. And they're, it's very rarely depicted as someone you know and someone who is close to you. And that's who this protagonist is. I mean, he does all of the classic grooming techniques. He gets himself, he, he embeds himself in the family. He, he does all of these things that, you know, are, are emblematic of, of what, many people have done in, in real life. And I think why it's so triggering for a lot of people is because he's doing things that a lot of people um, have done and continue to do. And so it's just, it's such an individual experience in terms of the book that from a survivor perspective, every reading is completely valid. And there's there's so many ways to look at it. And it's been like, just completely mind bending to um, learn all these different perspectives on on the same book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this is actually I've been thinking about this a lot lately because um, when Samantha first came on, we did a whole like twelve episode series on trauma and specifically mm -hmm. like sexual trauma. 
And as a survivor myself, I only just got the courage to admit on this show that I have written rape scenes before. And I've never Mm -hmm. published them. And I probably never will. And they're from, you know, the survivor's point of view. And they're... uh, it feels weird to say because they're not published, but they're not like gratuitous or whatever. But sure. it, it's, I have an anxiety around that, around like the juxtaposition of entertainment of this horrific thing that is in fact so often taken in the wrong way by our culture mm-hmm. and portrayed perhaps as victim blaming. And yeah, getting entertainment from that. But at the same time, I do think there's value in, in those stories because they happen. They happen, and and I just I don't know if you can connect to that at all. The, this like anxiety between those two things, and I think part of it is like a careful telling from somebody who is a survivor from their point of view and making scenery on them, and that almost never happens in our entertainment or in how people interpret our entertainment. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I'm I'm coming to this story from a from a survivor perspective as well, and. It, I don't know. I mean, it's part of what I've I've been trying to do is she, you know, the the victim is really difficult to find in the pages of this book, and that's a lot of the issues I think of the the common common bad reads of of this book is that if you're not trained to look for her, then it's really difficult to find her. I do think that she's in there. But, you know, even the title of the book is Creating Distance Between You and the Victim because Lolita is not her actual name. Her actual name is Dolores. Lolita is kind of this um, fantasy that a sex abuser is projecting onto her and taking advantage of. But you, when you hear about Dolores, you're like, you have to constantly remind yourself, this is a 12-year-old girl. And when you're hearing about Dolores, you're hearing about a normal kid who is caught in the most horrifying ordeal that anyone can be caught in. And I I totally agree with you. Like there need to be more narratives that are centered on victims and survivors or, or however you're referring to, to it. Um, Because the fact that there isn't is kind of why I think bad reads of books like Lolita are able to be perpetuated so much is because there's no no popular media that you know shows the other the other side of that situation. So if you're like some you know English 101 dweeb who just wants to bandwagon and be like it's the greatest book ever and you're not actually reading it you know what do you have to compare it to? And and there's it's not to say that those narratives don't exist but they don't exist in the gigantic you know, predator-centered perspective like Lolita is. And that, I mean, we could go go into like great writers of, like quote-unquote great writers of the literary canon who is granted that title and who isn't. And, and, you know, we, we could go and go and go on that. But yeah, I think that part of the reason people misread and, and fixate on predator-centered narratives is because they haven't sought out the other perspective, which is extremely dangerous. Yeah. You know, that kind of brings me back to uh, Annie and I were talking about Cuties, uh, the Netflix movie that lost, everybody lost their heads on. Like, like, oh my God, this is all about pedophilia and they're trying to groom these kids. But in actuality, the storytelling was the opposite of that, talking about girls growing up too quickly in a world of social media and all of that. Do you think that it's stories like uh, people's translation of stories like uh, Lolita that causes people to automatically react without even knowing to allow for that perspective to be shown, that other side of this is the horrific side, this is the growing up side that we need to talk about, but we can't because we're already uh, fixated on the dirtiness, I guess, uh, for all intent and purposes, of things like Lolita and the cultural aspects that Stanley Kubrick did with Lolita. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that definitely factors in. I still haven't seen Cuties, so I can't yeah, speak to that movie specifically. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I, I that totally tracks for for me is the fact that this is like it just constantly blows my mind that there is such a gigantic 
cultural taboo still around talking about surviving abuse of this kind, particularly as a child, but there is absolutely no cultural taboo and, in fact, like encouragement to sexualize young people. Like it, mm-hmm. it's a recipe for absolute disaster. And so, again, I haven't seen I haven't seen cuties, but it just based on the conversations I've been having, and my my views are constantly kind of changing and evolving and. This has been such a journey, mm-hmm. um, but it, you know, it, it seems like there there hasn't been much of a productive cultural discussion about sex abuse of children because it makes people tense up. It makes them uncomfortable to think about. It's an uncomfortable reality. But you can't you can't refuse to have that discussion and be completely complicit in the sexualization of you know young people in media it can't, right. it's just it's a guarantee that abuse is going to continue unchallenged if if both of those things are true All right um and i'm going to try to figure out how to rephrase this question because we talked <laughs> about QAnon before, and of course, oh, okay. Pizzagate, and all of these things, which they oh do make uh, abuse seem like it's uh, obviously monsters in the in the closet, uh, you know, in the the strangers in the uh, in the woods waiting to kidnap you, and all of these things in the van. Instead of realizing that uh, a lot of the times that the abuse happens with people closer, like the story that is being told in Lolita, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think the connection and the disconnect between people because I I've definitely seen people uh, giving leeway. At, well, shit, we can talk about the Trump administration right now as when we yeah. talk about Weinstein and versus also Epstein, but how they are giving passes to certain people who are obviously being uh, implicated uh, because mm-hmm. they want to see them as heroes and they want to see them as good guys. And it kind of happens with like the translation of that book for some people where. You know, Humbert is a poor victim who just fell yeah. in love with the wrong person kind of thing. Like, do you see a correlation or do you have like like <laughs> a better yeah. take on that or than I'm <laughs> trying to express? <laughs> no, no, I totally I totally hear what you're saying. I it's the tricky part is like I it's I, I I agree that that's true. And then the the question is like, what is the solution to that? Mm-hmm. Because it's there does seem to be this, you know, especially in you know very radicalized communities like QAnon, and, and of like who can condemn child sexual abuse the loudest, right. uh, versus like yes, we absolutely should be condemning this, but also like let's critically think about and then what? Right. You can't just say you know, and 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 also like you're describing creating distance between the most you know, common abusers are, are are people that you know already. And so I think that it is a very common, like the, the way that people gave popular media f- figures like uh, Epstein, like Weinstein. I just finished a long rehash of uh, Charlie Chaplin, who was just like a serial abuser, was brought to court multiple times at the height of his fame, and no one cared because... Mm-hmm. It was not a discussion that was had. It was taboo and it was easier to blame the victim than to, you know, accept the fact that the most famous movie star in the world was sexually abusing girls for years. Mm. And it's, yeah, I mean, it, I, 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 I'm, it feels like a miracle that we are like, it's a popular discussion to be having now, but it's still like, we need more results. I'm glad the discussions are happening, but the results aren't there yet. And I, that's why I hope, I hope if, if anyone gets anything out of this podcast, it's just kind of analyzing on the deepest level I can how this clear-cut predator who you're told on page one of the source material is a predator and does not deserve your sympathy. Mm-hmm. How has he just gotten away with it and away with it and away with it. And it's almost 70 years later and a large swath of readers are still letting him get away with it. How does that happen? And how many levels of complicit does a culture have to be in order for that to happen? 
We have a little bit more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. And we're back. Thank you sponsor. I thought you did a great job with uh, bringing in uh, samples of different 12 year old girls uh, actually having s- snippets of them interviewed and what they actually sound like to remind. This is what 12-year-old is. It's not yeah. this, mm-hmm. uh, cele- like, it's not this TV show 18-year-old playing a 12-year-old. It is a right. literal child yeah. having a conversation about being excited about her brand new toy or brand new phone or whatever, whatnot. And I thought mm-hmm. you did an amazing job in making that a reminder. But it also still, like, was so disappointing to see and the two that I remember specifically, it was like men saying, you know, you can just love a book for wh- how beautifully it's written. Just because it's about the subject doesn't mean you should hate on it. Like, it was, it's like, so, why? Like, the literary bro who's like, don't be a hater. I'm like, I just don't have, I'm like, the point is to be a hater, you fool. Like, oh, it's, it's, it's infuriating. It I totally, really like, it, and having, and, and I'm still like, really just, like aggravated and just completely like confused as to why my favorite children's author recommended this book to children. Like, why would you do that? And this was in, you know, 2004, 2005. This was like not that long ago. It's still such a normalized thing to do. And it like, I just... Yeah, I, I want to talk to as many people about it as possible because I just feel like if the conversation isn't had, it's just going to keep stalling. And right. and so, oh, it's so frustrating. Yeah, that li- the literary bro perspective. There, there's a really good <laughs> Rebecca Solnit essay uh, in, I think it's in the Men Explain Things to Me essay collection, but it's Men Explain Lolita to Me and it details that exact right. thing. And wow. then also what we were talking about of like, you know, kind of literary bros playing devil's advocate and being like, well, you know, if someone wrote a book this beautiful from a victim's perspective, I would also love it. And then she's like, okay, but where is that book? Like, let's get that book. (laughs) Show me that book. And, and, you know, cis male readers are not constantly confronted with depictions of potentially their own abuse. And they're not really faced with that kind of trigger the way that a lot of readers of Lolita are being actively triggered and it just ugh, the refusal to engage from literary bros i just i just can't <laughs> right really it's a whole it's really it was a whole thing i was like why 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 are you even commenting stop commenting like i really want right, to right. Just say, log out. <laughs> no, the, 
or even yeah well. there's like people that kind of misunderstood before the show started coming out people who like misunderstood what I was trying to do with the show right. and they're like yeah finally I want someone to say like it's a good book and I shouldn't feel bad and it's right. like uh, you, you have to you, you have to use your brain you have to use your brain yeah. it's the rule you gotta you oh gotta. I will say I was a little like my whole like little bit of oh no was because I've had so many people justified me why it's such a great book. Uh, like I was talking about the TA, it was a woman who told me how great this was and that it was a love story that I was so fearful. I'm like, oh God, we can't do this. Like I automatically yeah. got on like a, <gasps> make sure we're all on the same page moment because I definitely had those moments. But I, I did want to ask you, because I think this is a social worker, uh, caseworker in me. When you read it as that child, what, what, like, what made you say it was your favorite book? Was it because you were told it was supposed to be a good book or was there something in it that made you feel like, Oh, this is why it's a good book. Uh, when I was a kid, it was it, it was a very all over the place read. I first I didn't fully understand it. I was um, it was almost like I wanted to. I wanted my favorite book to be my favorite author's favorite book. Okay. Um, and so I was going into it thinking I was like, well, like if this is Lemony Snicket's favorite book, there must be like it must be like this awesome book, and I love it. And so that was where I was starting with it, and then. I think because I didn't have the literary tools at 11 right. to to fully understand the abuse taking place, I was coming from a place of like, what had I experienced and what was I seeing in my life around this time? And what I was seeing in media and just like around me was a lot of excusing of this behavior. And so you're almost like, I was like, oh, that her suffering is i i thought as a kid which it like makes me so sad to think about now is like having it presented that her suffering was somehow justified i i was trying to be on board with that yeah. as a kid which is just like the it makes me so sad and i just want to give her a hug right. and you know, kind of, I've talked with a lot of people about kind of like forgiving your past self for how you first read this book because right. I totally misread it. I didn't understand it. I, you know, I read on the cover that it was a love story. It was my favorite author's book. And so I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going in on. And, yeah. you know, even the, you know, people in my life and the the teachers around, you know, it, it was uh, an entire culture and environment that, wouldn't have encouraged me to look at things from Lolita's perspective. Right. Um, and so I, I think that that is why it really upset me looking mm -hmm. back of like, no one told me. The only, no one had a discussion with me about it. The only thing that happened is someone took the book away and then, <laughs> and then I never, and then we never talked about it. And, right. and a lot, and I, you know, I, along with, everything else, I, I, I think I really internalized something mm -hmm. harmful that encouraged me to blame abuse on myself. Right. Um, and I wish I had had, a, I just wish I had had a talk about it. And I wish, mm. because I, I think that there is a, a, a version of, you know, me getting my hands on that back too early that if I had had a talk with an adult that I trusted, I could have actually you know, taking it in a little, a little better. If like, no, you, this is, you know, almost this cautionary tale, right. like don't fall for someone who treats you this way and talks to you this way. It's, right. they're not to be trusted. They're a criminal. Um, but that wasn't how I read it. And I, I didn't really have anyone that I could talk to about it. And so I ended up just kind of taking away the wrong message and still being like, mad about it 15 years later. And so here, you know, here I am. Right. I mean, that's rightly so. You're not the only one, obviously, that yeah. has taken it to this level as well. Like it also, I think one of the things that really frustrated me about this book, even though you're looking at, again, the perspective, and I'm, again, I love that you actually do say that because I, I went away from that, but it really does have this language where she is A, the temptress, and she knows what's going on, and she's doing this too, and she's complicit, which is absolutely false, and it's absolutely yeah. within this mind. And and I agree with the psychiatrist and the um, child psychologist, which I'm not a professional that way, in that it does help you. Cut, like, I remember thinking this, like, this is 
the mind of a pedophile. This is someone who truly justifies their love and abuse of children because they think, as long as I'm not hitting them, I'm not hurting them, I'm not making them constantly cry type of thing, this is love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's got and that he whole is making her constantly playbook. cry. There's ex- exactly, yeah, that's that's exactly like, and you know, it's n- now that I'm. And it's interesting, like I've talked to people who have read the book, you know, as a kid, as a college student, and then as a mother plugging themselves into, um, you know, Dolores's mother's role because she gets, I mean, to say the least, an extremely raw deal out of this story as well and is always kind of squarely, you know, there's a lot of different views on her, but I think people also lose the narrative that like, you know, Humbert is also shaping your perspective of her. Right. He makes her out to be this cruel person, this nag who hates her daughter, who can't stand her, when it seems like she is a mother, a single mother of a 12-year-old, and they argue. Mm-hmm. Like, that that was me and my mom, and she was not a, you know, horrific monster. But then you're like, well, who is shaping your perspective here? Right. Who benefits from you thinking that this woman was expendable and in fact bad for the person that he wanted to abuse. Mm-hmm. So there's so, uh, it just, it's it's so much. And right. I feel like it, it's just this very like central example of a lot of bigger cultural issues. Mm-hmm. And it's not going away. This right. is the other thing. It's like, if I thought that there was any hope that this story would kind of fade away um, and and be kind of have its place taken, then I wouldn't have even done the project. But it's it's still so present that, um, yeah. It is. I mean, it's it's kind of frustrating. <laughs> I feel this again. Yeah. That's why I'm like, yeah. hellfire, try this book instead. Like, yeah. I really, really want to change that there perspective too. Uh, but yeah. yeah, and I think you are absolutely correct. And when you were talking about being a child, not understanding what this is and having this level again this is kind of underhanded grooming from the author and himself sure and being like this is no this is the greatest book ever and trying to having this maybe he doesn't understand i don't know i won't i won't say i know for sure but like this influence <sighs> of saying this and and bringing out this cultural idea that this is the ultimate love story and therefore we should all be accepting of this. And we see this constantly, whether it's celebrities continuing to date barely 18, 20 year olds and, and justifying it and saying it's okay um, mm-hmm. because, you know, they're adult enough and, and justifying a, woman, a girl's actions by saying she's older than she seems, which is, again, a constant <sighs> narrative. And, and being a child wanting to be seen that way, like the, it feeds all into yeah, that perspective. Absolutely. It's it 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 yeah, and then on top of that, it's sorry I could like talk about this forever. It's like it. on my mind like twenty five eight. But um, yeah, I mean, even speaking with with um, child psychologists as well of a perspective, I I was like, oh, I think that this is like something I needed to hear, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just like inner child wise, where you know she she was. She's this amazing psychologist named um, Lucia Williams who has worked in this field for decades. And she was like, well, you know, and it's it's equally telling that, you know, D- Dolores is a 12-year-old. She's a pubescent girl. She's coming into her own sexually. And, you know, I, I f- that is used against her in, in a way that, like, incur- that makes it feel unsafe for you to come into your own sexuality and have interests and want to explore and have that just be completely taken from you and exploited to the highest degree. And in the way that the it's described in the book really, you know, stunts her emotional growth and causes her to really go inward. And there's there's these scenes in the book that no one ever talks about because they're they don't serve the main narrative of of how this book is presented but there's scenes where you know they're talking to the the principal of um Dolores's school and they're talking about how she is you know really not doing well she won't talk to people she's not able to open up and it just breaks your heart cuz you're just like it, it is yeah. there you know the the clear signs that she is you know abused she's confused she's suffering so much and you're being told this but as a lot of readers are just not 
taking it in. And it's like, well, why, why is it so hard to take in if it is, you know, right there? So, oh, right. it's a lot. It is. <laughs> it is. I, I do have yeah. one last question, though, because oh, I God. don't want to escape from it. <laughs> what is Lolita fashion? And can you please tell me, like, obviously they said, please, uh, you know, take us out of this narrative. But yeah. what is this? It's been, it's, I, I, I've been very fortunate so far that we, uh, I set up a Discord to, uh, for listeners to talk to each other mm-hmm. um, in kind of like a, a safe space um, and, and trying to create a space for a discussion about this book to happen for people who um, have read it over the years and are frustrated with the literary bro, uh, you know, Kubrick right. interpret, forced interpretation. Um, and so I wasn't totally sure going into it. I assumed that the two were related. Um, apparently, my understanding, and I'm still working on my episode that addresses this, but uh, Lolita fashion is a fashion that uh, it's, I guess, the reason it's the same term is a translation thing. It's an unfortunate translation coincidence okay. because the actual fashion style is, you know, kind of like a young, like ro- rococo? I don't know if I've ever said that word out loud. Rococo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ro- rococo? I don't know, but I know what I you're talking about. <laughs> but like that, that's kind of the aesthetic. Um, and so it's not, you know, it's not absurd to me that people have seen Lolita fashion and then seen what the fashion is and think that the two are related. They're not. Um but it's been interesting because people from the Lolita fashion community have come into our Discord right. and been like, hey, I just came here to say it's not related. And then have ended up having a really cool discussion about the book. And uh, <laughs> so, it, yeah, it's it's not related. It is just a term coincidence. But there are also... Um, fashion subcultures that are related to mm-hmm. Lolita. And there's, I'm, I'm still in process of like working on my episode about um, internet sub communities that have formed around this book. But there, <laughs> there is like a whole kind of thriving corner of niche fashion that is almost, you know, all, um, you know, all women, uh, queer people, non-binary people, et cetera, who uh, it's called non-sexual nymphet fashion, and and it's a thing, and wow. they're having it's it's <laughs> we don't have time to get into it, but it's it's been a very kind of a, a fascinating um, journey of finding ways that people have kind of reclaimed this text, and and that marginalized communities have reclaimed this text in a way that. Um, I just wouldn't have expected or thought of myself. So this might have to be a part two, Jamie. Yeah, <laughs> it's a whole yeah. thing. It's a whole thing. Oh, uh, and and we didn't even talk about the Broadway musical. So you know, there's <laughs> yeah. just oh, need a part two. Yeah. Okay, need a part yeah. two. <laughs> to be concluded. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, you've got a whole podcast listeners can listen to about all yes. of this. Yes. Um, thank you so much for being here. Where can the listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm on Twitter at Jamie Loftus Help and on Instagram at Jamie Christ Superstar. Uh, and then you can listen to Lolita Podcast and the Bechtel Cast on iHeartRadio. There you go. Clearly, there's a lot to unpack. So go check those out. (laughs) If you'd like to contact us, you can. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us at Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. 
Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC.